Alright, so today we are going to begin our journey through the book of Matthew. So as a church, uh, we will go through verse by verse through the Bible from cover to cover, and we've got to start somewhere. So we're going to start in the book of Matthew. If you didn't bring a Bible with you, there are Bibles located in the seat pocket right in front of you. Uh, so feel free to take those, and if you don't have one at home, uh, congratulations, you've got another gift. Take those. We are going to be so excited if you take our Bibles. It's not stealing. Nobody's going to turn you in. Uh, if not, if you've got your favorite app, feel free to pull that up. Uh, we are going to cover one whole verse this morning in the book of Matthew. So strap in, right? This is going to be uh, exciting. But uh, before we start any book, we are going to first do an introduction to the book itself. And so today, we're going to introduce the book of Matthew. And we're going to start with who is the author of the book of Matthew? Drum roll, it is Matthew. So uh, this is important, though, because sometimes these books are debated. Uh, this is one of those where the authorship is not uh, openly debated. It was decided in the, first, in the first century that Matthew is the author of Matthew. And so uh, I bring that about because the who does matter in these books. Right, that the author of the book does matter, and some of you may have a red flag because you think, well, the Holy Spirit authored the entire book, and you are true to a point. The Holy Spirit did, in fact, inspire the entire Bible, but he also used people to do it. So Matthew is one of those people, and we get perspective from those people from their points of view, and so it's important for us to look at who is the author. Uh, secondly, I want to note that Matthew, even though it's the first book in our New Testament, it's not it was not the first gospel that was circulated in the first century church. Uh, that instead, that designation goes to the book of Mark. So Mark was widely circulated through the Roman Empire somewhere around 50 A.D., and uh, most scholars would estimate uh, probably five to ten years later the book of Matthew would have been introduced around the same time as the book of Luke. So we have Matthew, Mark, and Luke that come together, and these are what we uh, call the synoptic gospels. And that sounds like a big scary word, but what it really is is two Greek words kind of smushed together. Sin, meaning similar, and uh, opsis, meaning uh, view. So you've got similar view. And I bring that up to say uh, these books share a lot of the same stories, and they also share a lot of the same patterns. And so as you go through the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, what you'll find is they follow the similar pattern in coverage in the narrative of the life of Jesus. They look at his Galilean ministry, they look at his Judean ministry, that area around Jerusalem, and then uh, they focus on the Passion Week, the final week in the life of Christ. So the book of Mark, as an example, is one that I just referenced, where the key word in the book of Mark is immediately. It's a very fast-paced, quick-moving book. But as it moves super fast-paced through the first ten chapters of Mark, all of a sudden, when it gets to the Passion Week, the final week of Jesus, he hits the brakes and he spends six chapters just covering that final week. So that is the pattern, in essence, for all three of these synoptic Gospels. Now, you might also be asking... Uh, sorry, I lost my place. Okay, so the first thing we're going to do is we're going to look at the book of Matthew. We're going to turn to Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. And this is our big verse for today, as we cover a family tree. And what it says in Matthew chapter 1, first one, verse 1, is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And so where we're going to begin is with a family tree. Right? We're all excited now, a genealogy, right off the bat. 
very enthralling. Uh, but what I want to point out is this is imperative for Matthew in his gospel because he's writing it from a Jewish perspective, writing it to a Jewish audience, and he's trying to lay out that Jesus is the long-awaited Jewish Messiah. The other thing that Matthew is going to work to uh, make clear to us is that the key word, the key phrase, if you want to jot this down in your Bible, if you don't get freaked out about jotting in your Bible, the key word in the book of Matthew is the word fulfilled. And so we're going to see over and over again that prophecy is fulfilled in the life of Jesus, which all points back to his point that he is the awaited Messiah, the Mashiach in Hebrew, the anointed one. Now, uh, it, our verses begin with, this is the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And so what we're going to see in just these first few lines is two huge prophecies that are fulfilled, even though it doesn't look like it at first glance. But what we're going to find out is that he is the son, first of all, of Abraham. Going all the way back to Genesis chapter 12, and I'll flip back there with you. Go all the way to the beginning, Genesis chapter 12. As God speaks here to Abraham, this is what he says. He's called him at 75 years young out of his home country, the Ur of the Chaldees, and he says this, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you, and in you all families of the earth shall be blessed. And so we see this this huge promise to Abraham that in his seed, through his line, all the earth will be blessed. This is a promise of the coming Messiah. And we see this further play out in the life of Abraham because at, at the ripe age of 75, he's promised a son. By the way, he has no children. So that seems a little humorous that he's promised not only a son, but he's promised to be a great nation. Like, that's amazing. Uh, but what we also know is that the promise is not fulfilled until he is 100 years old. 25 years it takes for the promise to be fulfilled in the life of his son Isaac, which is downright laughable. Like that's hilarious that a 100-year-old man and a 90-year-old woman would have a baby, so much so that they even named their son Isaac, which is laughter. So that's, that's Isaac's translation. Now, we get to Genesis 22, and what we find is God tells Abraham to take your son, your only son, and go sacrifice him on Mount Moriah. So this would make you take a step back. Like if you're Abraham, you finally get the son of promise, and now God tells you to go and sacrifice your son, your only son. Now Abraham, being the father of faith and being obedient, he does take his son, and they make their way up to Mount Moriah, which, by the way, for reference, is just outside of Jerusalem. And they, they make their way up the mountain, and on the way up, Isaac asks a very good question. He says, Dad... Uh, we've got the wood for the altar. We've got the fire for the sacrifice, but where's the sacrifice? And Abraham's response in our New King James Version is, God will provide for himself a sacrifice. And I point that out because if you look at what the Hebrew actually says, it says God will provide himself a sacrifice. So it cuts the word for out there, which makes a big difference as we see the story play out. So what, what happens is the altar is built, Isaac is placed on the altar, and right before he plunges the dagger into young Isaac, God tells him to stop, to cut it out, no more, you've gone far enough, and then off in the thicket, they see a lamb trapped. 
that they're able to take and actually offer as a sacrifice to God. Now, last little bit as we kind of open that story up, I want to point out to you is that most likely in the time frame that this, uh, that this story goes, it, it contradicts our Bible uh, school learnings that Isaac was a little boy. That very likely Isaac was around 30 years old, which makes Abraham around 130. I point that out because uh, how many of you know a 30-year-old man is not going to be overpowered by a 130-year-old guy to be placed on an altar, right? It's just not going to happen, which means that Isaac was completely obedient to the father. He laid his life down as his father requested, and he carried his own wood up Mount Moriah, which we later find out through the gospel is actually known as Golgotha. So, that kind of opens up the story in our eyes of just what God is trying to paint early on in the book of Genesis that Isaac is a type of Jesus. He's showing through his life what he's going to do for the entire world, fulfilling Genesis chapter 12. Now, beyond that, we also read that, he, that Jesus will be the son of David. Now that comes from Second uh, Samuel chapter 7. So fast forward about 700 years and we are now in the reign of King David. He is the king over all of Israel, and he has got some kind of kingdom going on. He has got battles on every front that he's won. He's now sitting in his palace victorious. He's feeling fantastic about how things have gone. And here he is. He's thinking about the Lord and how good God is, how, how God took him from just being a little shepherd boy to now uh, being a king over an entire nation. It's amazing to think about. And he has this awesome thought. You know what I need to do? I need to build a house for the Lord. I need to build a temple. I shouldn't be in this house where God is still stuck out in that nasty old tabernacle, right? The tabernacle was like the double wide trailer. So, you know, yeah, it worked fine for a while while they traveled through the wilderness, but now he needs something better than that. And so David has this great idea to build a house for the Lord, and he mentions it to his, uh, his best number one prophet, a guy named uh, Nathan. He says, this is what I'd like to do. And Nathan gives an answer without ever even praying about it. And he says, do what all's in your heart, David. Go for it, man. Now, have any of you ever answered a question like that and you hadn't actually prayed about it? Nathan did. I know I have. So this is the spot he was in. And he goes home that night and he lays down and God makes it very clear that he wasn't supposed to give that answer to David, that David was a man of war. He had great amounts of blood on his hands. He, he won tremendous victories at, at God's direction, by the way, but God didn't want a man of blood building his house. He wanted a man of peace, which would be the son of David. Solomon would actually be the one to build his temple. And so uh, Nathan has to go back and tell the king, hey, by the way, that thing I told you you should go do, you can't do right now. That, that would be a little risky, I'd think, if you're a prophet and you have to go tell a king he can't do what he wants to do. But read what the Lord says with me in chapter 7 of 2 Samuel, verse 12. This is what Nathan the prophet tells David that the Lord has directed him. He says, when your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He will build a, a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. That sounds like a little bit more than just a regular king, right? Having his throne established forever. This is the promise given to David through his line. And now we see why it's so important for Jesus to be the son of Abraham and the son of David. So there's a reason why we start 
with a genealogy, it's because it, it must take place in order to be fulfilled. All right. Now, one other question you might have as we've read through this is why do we have four gospel accounts? Why is this that we need uh, four different versions of seemingly the same story, right? I asked that at least when I was a kid. And so I'm going to give you a couple reasons. We'll start with the practical. From the practical side of things, in order to have a believable testimony or a believable word, you must have a witness to what took place. Now, uh, what's better than a witness but then to have two witnesses What's better than two but to have three? Even better, have four witnesses. So if you really want to have a, a sealed tight case against someone in a court of law, if you brought four witnesses to the table, you, there would be no questions asked. And I think that's the practical reason why we have these four different gospel accounts. Now, there's also some question because there are some seeming discrepancies between the accounts, but they're usually in the minutiae and the small details and what I would share with you is it's because they're all looking at it from a different point of view. Uh, by way of example, uh, years ago, it's, it's the first NFL weekend this weekend, so a little football story. Years ago, my wife and I got the opportunity to go to a Colts playoff game. And I love the Colts, have my entire life. So we get to go to the old RCA Dome, RCA Dome and we watch them play the Denver Broncos and Jake the Snake Plummer is the quarterback. And what I witnessed that day was one of my all-time favorites as a Colts fan as we completely obliterated the pathetic Broncos. We stepped right on the head of Jake the Snake and beat them 49 to nothing. It was awesome from my perspective. But then on the other side of the field, uh, at the RCA Dome, there were Bronco fans. Not many of them, but there were some there. And they watched the same game but had a completely different takeaway to the same result. You see, depending on which end of the stadium you're on, you have a way different feeling for how things took place. But we still would have ultimately got to the same result. So that's the practical reason behind why the four gospel messages. We get different perspectives. But then, secondly, I want to just point to a different reason, and this is on the spiritual side. So we're going to shift gears a little bit. For some of you, it's going to get a little weird, but just hang on. I will tie this together, I promise. In Ezekiel chapter 1, Ezekiel gets a vision of the throne of God. And as he gets this unbelievable vision there, he sees these beasts, these creatures, these angelic beings, and they have four different faces. There's four creatures with four faces that surround the throne of God. And they had the faces of an ox, an eagle, a man, and a lion. And so he's got this, this crazy vision where he sees the throne, and these are the, the, the faces that he sees. Now fast forward all the way to the book of Revelation, and John the Revelator in Revelation 4 also gets a vision of heaven, and he sees the throne of God, and what does he see? But four angelic beings with four different faces, the faces of an ox, an eagle, a man, and a lion. And so it's interesting. We've got, we've got these four different uh, parallel accounts of what the throne of God would look like. Now, secondly, I want to point out that as Moses brings the nation of Israel through the wilderness in the book of Numbers. I know how much you guys love the book of Numbers. You probably spent all kinds of time there. But if you look in the book of Numbers, he actually organizes the tribes of Israel all around the tabernacle. So the tabernacle is the central point of worship. It's the place where the glory of the Lord would actually dwell. And he organizes the tribes, one to the north, or three to the north, 
three to the south, three to the east, three to the west. But in each case, he has a lead or a head tribe. And it would look a little something uh, like this picture here. And so the tribes have a little bit different sizes. Again, numbers gives us the, the quantity of how many people are in each tribe. And so as this gets laid out, it doesn't lay out in a perfect uh, X like you might think. Instead, if you flew over it, you might notice what the image would look like. It looks uh, suspiciously like a cross. But as he does this, each one of these lead tribes, Reuben, Dan, Ephraim, and Judah, each one of these lead tribes also has a flag. All the tribes of Israel had symbols that, th that were like their, their banner that they would get behind. I think a lot of it was so God could uh, tell their kids like where to go for dinner. You know, hey, their flag's up, get the dinner. But either way, they've got flags that represent their tribes. The flags were an ox, an eagle, a man, and a lion, all pointing towards the tabernacle, which was the place where the glory of God dwelt, which Moses was also instructed to build to be a model of heaven. And so what we have in the four gospel accounts is four different faces or perspectives that are all looking towards Jesus. We have the book of Mark, where Jesus himself even says in Mark 10, uh, 45, that the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He is laid out in the book of Mark as the suffering servant, and the picture throughout history of servitude is the ox. So Jesus is there laid out as the, as the oxen, as the suffering servant, which was important for those readers of the book of Mark because they were Romans, and the nation of, or the, the world, which was the Roman Empire, was made up uh, of over five million slaves and servants. This would have resonated with them very clearly. Secondly, we have the book of Luke. And the key phrase in the book of Luke is Son of Man. That's the title he gives for Jesus more than any other title in the book of Luke. Now, Luke lays out for us the perfect man, which was Jesus. He's our only Gentile writer. He was also a Greek. And the Greeks were enamored with philosophy and, and intelligence and intellect. And they had this concept of the perfect man. And so Luke writes his book describing the perfect man in Jesus Christ. Thirdly, we have the Gospel of John, which is not like the Synoptics, written about 30 years after them. But John goes out of his way from chapter 1, verse 1, to lay out that Jesus was God. He describes the deity of Christ. And throughout history, we have this, this image of what the deity is flying over the top of us of an eagle. And so we have the, the picture of Jesus as the Son of God, the eagle. And then finally, in the book of Matthew, where we're going to spend the next several months, we have Jesus as the Jewish Messiah, the lion of the tribe of Judah is the way he's going to be described for us. And so we have these four different faces all looking towards Jesus, who, by the way, if you go to John chapter 1, John chapter 1, this is what John says as he's describing uh, the Word of God, Jesus Christ. He says in John 1 verse 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. I point that out to point out that the word dwelt in the Greek is actually the same translation as the word tabernacled. So the word of God came to tabernacle among us. So here's all these faces pointing towards the tabernacle, the dwelling place for the glory of God, actually residing right there. Now, 
Who actually had access then to the tabernacle? Well, if you look at the diagram I showed on the slide before, the, the group that actually has access to the tabernacle itself, they're the priests and the Levites. They're the only ones that have the ability to actually go inside this really seemingly ugly big brown building. It was not pretty. It was covered in badger skin. I don't know if any of you ladies wear badger skin, but not the most attractive look out there. Now that's important because Isaiah even says he will have no form and no comeliness. He was not going to be the Brad Pitt of the Jewish nation. right? He's going to look like every other Jewish guy. He was going to be covered in brown skin, frankly. So here we have the tabernacle residing now among us, and the only people that got access to him were his disciples. Now for us, we go, listen, I'm not a priest, so therefore I don't get access to the tabernacle of God. I guess I don't have to have that pressure put upon me. Well, that is until you turn to Revelation chapter 5, verse 10, and this is what we're told about his saints, his believers. That's any of you in here that believe in Jesus. And he has made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on earth. So if you want to know who has access, it's you and me. We're the only ones that have the ability to go into the tabernacle and actually see the glory of God. What, what seems by the outside world is just an old brown building, a story thousands of years old. We get access to go in and see the gold and to see the menorah, the lights, the light of the world, right? The bread, the bread of life. We have access to see these things, to then take that and share it with people. So here we are as a new young church plant here in this neighborhood, and, and the thing we are called to do is to be light to this place. So if we, we take a step back and we go, man, it's just getting really dark in my neighborhood. It's getting so dark in my community, so dark in my county. Well, guess what? They're dark. They are what they are. They, they cannot change because they don't have access to the light. So if they're dark, it's because the light is stuck in here and not out there. So it's our job as we leave out of here to take the light to the people that don't know any better. So don't ever be shocked when non-Christians act like non-Christians. I'm always surprised when they don't act like that, right? Be, be encouraged because it, it's an opportunity for us to share, to witness, to speak into someone's life. What a blessing. Right? For, for lots of us, we kind of cringe whenever those things happen and we, you know, we, we hear the F-bomb dropped outside our office and we're like, oh. But think about it. They're just acting like the world acts. They don't know any better. So, so actually be encouraged by that because you now have an opportunity to be light. What a beautiful thing. So I think we pulled it all together. Now that you uh, know why the four Gospels were written, you can just leave out of here. Don't remember anything but ox, eagle, man, and lion. You're not going to hear anything else other than that. All right. Secondly, or, or finally, as we kind of wrap up, I want to look specifically at Matthew himself. And so I want to look at the story of Matthew his calling as a tax collector in particular. So I'll go to the Gospel of Matthew. We'll skip ahead a little bit. Don't worry, we won't be here for several months anyway. We're going to look at Matthew chapter 9, verse 9. And this is the calling of this young tax collector. Matthew chapter 9, verse 9 says this, As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting in the tax office, and he said to him, Follow me. So he arose and followed him. And now it happened as 
Jesus sat at the table in the house that, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to the disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But Jesus heard this and said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So Matthew's calling comes right here in this spot. Jesus sees him in tax booth and just simply says, follow me, and Matthew follows him. He then proceeds to go and throw a big old Jesus party with all of his friends. He has all of them come over to the house, and they have, you can imagine how shocked they would have been showing up at Matthew's house, right? They're usually used to coming over on Friday night, you know, partay. Somebody brought the case of Miller Lite, and they show up, and here's Jesus. Like, what a shock. Like, whoa, hey, hang on, where'd Jesus get here? And, uh, so Matthew has a Jesus party, and they're able to actually get to come in and get to know the King of Kings. So what an awesome thing as we come to know Christ, where we get to invite people in. And, and keep in mind, we probably only have a short window before they realize we're weird. And, but, but he took full advantage of this to invite people in and to get them to know, to know Jesus. I wanted to leave you with this as a piece of application, especially after the whole ox, eagle, man, and lion thing. I want to give you a little bit of application. That Matthew exhibits, and what we're going to see through his life, through the book, three different uh, abilities, we'll call them. And I know lots of times we'll go, I don't know what ability I have. I probably have no abilities for Jesus. But let me just share these three with you because I think we can all uh, learn a little something from these. The first he exhibits is flexibility, Right? He doesn't let tradition get him bogged down. And this is a key attribute to the ministry of Christ. He's not all, uh, uh, you know, been out of shape about Jewish tradition. And that's an important one for us, especially if you grew up in church, because lots of times we let tradition and the ways of man actually get in the way of what the gospel actually says. So, so we, we, get, we get decided that this must be how a thing occurs, and we, we kind of let that usurp the Word of God, which what Jesus says is, hey, listen, I desire mercy way more than I desire sacrifice. You guys are all upset about things, in particular the Sabbath. They were all about honoring the Sabbath day. And for sure, whatever day is your Sabbath, maybe it's every day of the week, honor that, but not so much so that you can't still help people and take care of people. This was the point that Jesus had. Now, uh, secondly, I want to share with you a little story about flexibility. So we are a, a non-denominational church that is affiliated with a Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa. So years ago, back in the late 1960s, Pastor Chuck Smith started a verse-by-verse Bible teaching uh, church right there in Costa Mesa, California. And as he just worked methodically through the Word of God, literally thousands of young hippies uh, actually were moved to follow Jesus. And you can, you can look this up. Historically, it's known as the Jesus Movement, where you see literally thousands of kids coming, I mean, right off of LSD, right into church. And they just came to know Christ. They didn't have a clue about the Bible. Most of them didn't have shoes on. They just came on in and Chuck baptized them. And so out of that, we see birth, actually some huge mega churches. Several of those pastors you might have heard of, like Skip Heitzig in Albuquerque, New Mexico, has got one of the largest churches in the country. And, and Greg Laurie at Harvest Christian Fellowship in San Diego or in the, the Southern California uh, area. And so you've got these great churches that were birthed out of this. But early on in the movement, uh, after services, Pastor Chuck was approached by a whole group of his elders. 
And they came into him and they said, Chuck, we've got a problem. Oh, really? You got a problem? And so they said, Here's the problem. All these, we just replaced the carpet in the sanctuary, and all these young hippies are coming in with no shoes on, and they're getting their dirty feet on the carpet of the sanctuary. It's going to ruin the carpet. Like, let's just face it, the carpet is going to be wasted if we don't do something about it. And Chuck said, you are absolutely right. This is a problem. We need to deal with it. And tomorrow morning, I'm calling a contractor, and we're going to rip out every bit of carpet in the sanctuary. See, they were far more concerned about the souls on people's feet than they were about their eternal soul. So Pastor Chuck has this saying, and I felt free to steal it. And he, he would say it in his big, uh, deep, booming radio voice. He would say, Blessed are the flexible, for they shall not be broken. Blessed are the flexible, for they shall not be broken. Don't let ourselves get all hemmed in on tradition and rules and regulations and, and forget all about people. It's all about them. All right, secondly, what we're going to see in the life of Matthew and throughout the gospel here is he exhibits teachability. And I put this up here. This is what the Lord gave me. It made sense to me. Maybe it doesn't to you. But if I look at the Bible based only on what I know, I'll never see what God wants to show. If I come into my Bible reading, and if I come in here to church over and over again with a set of preconceived notions, I've already got it set up in my mind what God's all about and what the Word's all about. I'm never going to see what He really wants to open and show me in Scripture. It's just not going to happen. So for Matthew, we see in his life, and, and it's what these Pharisees didn't possess, is Jesus wanted to show that He was the Word. So when we come in here and we study and we learn the Word of God, it's not just to learn and memorize the Word of God. It's to get to know the God of the Word. It's way deeper than that. It's about a relationship. And so teachability is the next ability that we see exhibited by Matthew. And then thirdly and finally, we have availability. And uh, years back, I, I love to watch the NFL draft. I don't know why I like the NFL draft. I don't know if it's just because I like numbers and rankings and that kind of thing. Maybe it's just a guy thing. My wife hated it. Still hates it to this day. Uh, but on the NFL draft coverage, there was a an, an analyst. His name's Herm Edwards. He's now the coach at Arizona State University. You don't need to know any of that information. Other than he had this thing to say about a particular prospect that they were looking at where he was going to go in the draft board. And he said, this guy has got the greatest ability you can have as a football player. He's got availability. Like, I love that, right? It didn't matter if he had the greatest arm of all players or if he could tackle or hit or run or jump high. None of these things mattered if he's not available. You have to actually get in the stinking game in order to make a difference for the team. And so this is the spot for Matthew. As Jesus gives him this opportunity and he says, follow me, what ability did he really show? He just made himself available. He just simply made himself available to what God had for him in that moment. And we can get all you know pent up with frustration because I just don't know what God wants to do in my life and uh, I feel like I should be doing something. But the question is, what has he made available to you? And what have you made available to him? There's lots of places that we want to parcel off and say, oh, that spot's not for you, Jesus. I'm going to hold this one back a little bit. So this is the last ability that we're going to see in the life of Matthew. 
And then finally to close, what I wanted to just share with you, uh, lest you think we're going to leave with only things you need to do. This is really probably the spot we should have started, but I think it's best to wrap it up. It's this question. How do you see Jesus sees you? Not how do you see you, and not how do others see you, but how do you see, in your mind's eye, Jesus sees you? What I mean by that is if we look back at, at these two stories, I talked to you about how there are synoptic Gospels, that, that there's similar views, similar stories that are shared here. But as we look at these synoptic, these same or similar stories, let's also look at the book of Luke, chapter 5. Last place for Bible drills, I promise. But in the book of Luke, chapter 5, and by the way, I cheat on Sunday. I put these tabs in here so I don't have to flip. I look like I'm super spiritual because I know right where the text is. So if it takes you a while, it's okay. Know ahead of time I knew where I was going to go most of the time. Luke chapter 5, this is the calling of Matthew. He says in verse 27, After these things he went out, being Jesus, and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax office, and he said to him, Follow me. So he left all, rose up, and followed him. Did you catch that? Luke called him Levi. Matthew's given name, the reason uh, we know this is because Luke put it out here, and, and he's referred to as Levi in other places. His given name was not Matthew. His given name was Levi. So more than likely, he grew up in a very Jewish family. He was given a very Jewish name like Levi. He was probably even from the tribe of Levi, which was where the Levites, the priests, come from. His folks, being from that tribe, more than likely had aspirations for their young son. Like, I've got an idea for you as you grow up. We never do this as parents, of course. I've decided what you want to be even before you've ever grown up. We've decided we want you to be a priest. We're going to call you Levi. And instead, somewhere along the line, things didn't go quite the way his mom and dad planned because he became a tax collector. This is the most hated group of individuals in the entire Jewish nation because they were considered, even worse than the Romans, they were traitors. They had turned on their own people. He was a Jew, now collecting taxes from other Jews. And to make matters worse, most of them were filthy, dirty crooks. They would steal just a little bit. Hey, I'm supposed to collect 10%. I'm going to get 12. Skim off the top a little bit. I'll keep a little for me. But these positions were very valued because you would get extremely wealthy if you were a Roman tax collector. The skimming was a piece of it, right? And so he left his original plan for his life or his parents' original plan for his life only to turn and be a, a tax collector of all things. And yet, in that story, notice with me, Matthew does not mention the name of Levi because as Jesus called him, what he records is, and Jesus passed on from there and he saw a man named Matthew. The name Matthew in Hebrew is Matiyahu. It means gift of Yahweh. Anybody ever thought that about a tax collector? The IRS? Anybody? You know what that tax collector is? A gift of God. Thank you so much, Jesus, for taxes. But here's the Christ looking at this young man 
who's sold out to the Romans. He's hated by everybody. And he looks at him and he says, Hey, Matiyahu, how about you come follow me? Well, I don't see a Levi. I see a Matthew. I see a gift of God in you. This is why I asked the question to begin with. How do you see Jesus sees you? Because I think lots of times, at least I'll speak in my own life, I look at it and go, boy, I really blew it there. I really wasted this whole season here. Or I feel like a complete and utter failure in this entire avenue that I thought I was going to go in. Or sometimes I blow it on purpose. I'm like, I don't even really care. I just want to go make myself successful. Right? And, and, and so often we can let ourselves be, be built up with self-doubt and frustration and go, boy, I've really blown it. I'm such a Levi. This is who I am. And I want to tell you here, before you ever even think you need to make yourself available and do things for Jesus, He sees you as Matthew. He sees you as a gift of God. You are not required to do one single thing for Him to see you that way. He is not looking for you to put in a servant application or to put money in the stinking box or to go out here and clean up the lot. No way. He looks at you from day one, from eternity beginning, and says you are a gift of Yahweh. And if you look at your life from that lens and from that starting point, it's going to change everything. Because what, what we say at Parkland Chapel, and we'll, we'll take that and we'll stick it here too, what happens when we see it like that, realizing that he loved me before I ever even chose him, he chose me, is the whole thing gets to become a get-to and not a have-to. I do not have to come to church. I do not have to do all those things that I instead get to do. And, it, folks, it changes it. It opens your eyes to, wow, I, I get to do things for the Lord. He's gifted me to, to do this. And, and it's not who I say I am. It's who He says I am. No longer am I rooted in what my folks think about me, what my neighbor thinks about me. I should probably stop peeing outside. But no matter, no matter, does it, it doesn't matter what my neighbor thinks about me. Oh, you should cut that out. But it doesn't matter what all these people from all these different sides think about me. It matters what Jesus says about me. And what he says is you are Matiyahu, gift of Yahweh. So Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for uh, first services, Lord. Thank you for first services that start in chapter 1s and verse 1s. And thank you that before uh, any of this actually took place, you knew every single person that was going to be sitting in every single seat. And for each of them, you viewed them as a gift. Thank you for the gift of family and friendships and new friendships. And Father, I just want to pray that you would bless these people here today that you would, by your Holy Spirit, we welcome you in this place, that you would, that you would just, uh, like oil over the head of Aaron, you would just pour over these folks to where they would feel your presence, your love, the way, as Shane even described, as he was talking about the relationship you have with us, it's one of a dad. And it's not a dad like we are as human dads, that we love, but we put, we put you know, parameters on it. It's unconditional. 
agape love. Thank you, Father, for that. And we praise you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.